When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. Coming up on the show today, we are eagerly awaiting the start of this joint press conference between President Biden and President South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Also, big news on infrastructure discussions going today. Some negative feedback from Senate Republicans uh, on the latest proposal from the White House. And I wonder if this uh, press conference gets pushed back. Maybe we'll have a little time to talk about this funny story about dating apps uh, adding a vaccination badge. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. The big thing we're waiting for now is at some point, relatively soon, we're supposed to get the beginning of a joint press conference uh, between President Biden and South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Uh, there's a lot to look for there. There's so much, uh, so, so many policy priorities between these two countries. North Korea obviously comes to mind. The status of vaccines, uh, because South Korea is definitely behind the U.S. in in a vaccination rate, semiconductors, climate change. Uh, With all of that in mind, Rick, I'm curious, let's start with you. What's the number one thing you're looking for when we actually hear from these two, Biden and President Moon? Yeah, I think you hit it uh, right at the top, Jack. It's it's North Korea. Uh, That's probably 60 percent of everything they're going to talk about. And it certainly has the biggest, most dramatic impact long term on the, the, the Republic of Korea. So uh, I would think that 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 getting set with a strategy around how you approach North Korea uh, uh, and, and how different that will be from where we sort of left off in 2018 with the Singapore agreement uh, is going to have major ramifications domestically for President Moon. And so this is the number one thing I think that is going to be uh, the highest uh, priority for the two uh, world leaders. And what's what's your expectation on how the Biden administration focuses on that issue of North Korea? Because obviously, you know, after a few years of 
waiting to see if we're going to hear from Dennis Rodman on this. The high-profile stuff, the handshake at the border, uh, it, it, it seems that Biden is taking a very, very different approach on North Korea. Do you have any real expectations for major news breaking on that, or is Biden just kind of trying to play that as quietly and softly as possible, Rick? Yeah, I think it's it's the latter. Uh, I, I think the, the president and his team have figured out that a grand bargain actually empowers uh, Kim Jong-un, and, and they don't want to do that. And so they're looking at small ball. They're, they're, I think their view, as they've said, is a calibrated uh, practical approach to dealing with North Korea. Uh, they realize that the idea that they can get Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear program in total, the hundreds of nuclear weapons he's probably stockpiled by now, is going to be very difficult. So how do you make incremental progress without actually creating a rehabilitation effort? Uh, this was one of the things policy experts during the Trump uh, administration were so worried about, is that they inflated the importance of a dictator who runs a third-rate country. And so the, the fact that Biden wants to reset that and try to make progress at the same time is is probably what's in the best interest of the United States and the world, may or may not coincide with North Korea and President Moon wanting it to be a uh, highly visible priority for uh, his country uh, so that they can uh, make some political points off of it at home. Right. Right. Well, clearly, uh, stability on the Korean Peninsula is a, a major uh, issue here, as you said, Rick. And we actually have sound from earlier today uh, from Vice President Kamala Harris talking about uh, some uh, priorities for the Biden administration. Let's play that sound. At a time when our world faces increasing threats to our health, security, and climate, it is more important than ever that the United States and the Republic of Korea work closely together. So, Jeannie, I'm curious, are you looking for, in this joint press conference, something concrete, some announcement? Uh, I know, you know, there was the sort of economic side uh, today, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and uh, President Moon of South Korea releasing an agreement to deepen cooperation in several areas of the economy, pharma companies, uh, electric vehicle batteries, et cetera. But I'm curious if there's, is this going to be the kind of thing where we're going to get a handshake agreement on something relating to North Korea? Or as Rick just alluded to, uh, would you expect the Biden administration to just try to uh, keep keep things stable and uh, welcome the South Korean president without making massive news? What's on your radar, Jeannie? I'm really watching for two things. Um, number one, um, I think that the Korea, they have indicated that out of this, they would like a big deliverable on vaccine. President Moon, who we have to remember is in his last year, unlike Joe Biden in his first year, has promised herd immunity 70% by November, but he doesn't have enough vaccine by the end of the year to get there. So somebody needs to fill that gap, and I think they are looking to the U.S. to do that. And so I think a win for South Korea out of this summit will be some kind of agreement on vaccine diplomacy. I think that's number one what I'm looking for. Number two, I'm looking to see how South Korea 
negotiates and manages this balancing they act they have between agreements with the U.S. and not offending China on all those things you were just mentioning, technology, chips, EVs, batteries, right? All of these things that came up at the Quad Summit that South Korea would like to agree to but has to be very careful not to offend China. So how they manage that, I think, is going to be fascinating to watch. So those are the two things I'm watching. And then, of course, I don't think we're going to get a big agreement on North Korea, but I do think it's going to obviously be at the top of the agenda discussed, but I don't think we see an agreement on it out of here. Right. So on your first point, Jeannie, 70% by November is the South Korean goal. They had gotten off to a very slow start in terms of their uh, vaccination rate. How much do you think it affects a country like South Korea, the news that has come out recently about the U.S. not just sending out AstraZeneca vaccines internationally, but some of the vaccines that we use here, the, the latest number was 20 million in total of vaccines such as Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. Is it, it, what do we know about how focused that's going to be on South Korea, and does that make a, a big difference for them? A big issue in South Korea, and it's really impacted Moon domestically. He's had real challenges there in terms of their ability to combat the virus, hence this promise, and hence, I think, a big focus underlying this meeting, which is to see what can be done by way of an agreement with the U.S. Some people are talking about a potential swap where the U.S. provides vaccine, and then when they get their influx later in the year, they return some of that. I don't know what the parameters of the agreement will look like, but I do think for South Korea and for the U.S., a big deliverable out of this will be this vaccine diplomacy and what the U.S. can provide and what they can agree to by way of helping Moon fulfill that promise. Right. Now, guys, we're going to watch for news when this happens uh, a little later in the hour, the joint presser between President Biden and South Korean President Moon Jae-in. But there's other big news this afternoon. In fact, just before the show started on infrastructure negotiations, we got a statement from Senator Shelley Moore Capito's staff mentioning vast differences between the two sides. This is after, earlier today, the White House sent along a $1.7 trillion infrastructure plan. Keep in mind, these numbers have bounced around. The original Biden plan was two and a quarter trillion. Republicans came back uh, with a $568 billion counteroffer. Now the latest number from Democrats at the White House is $1.7 trillion. But the latest news on this uh, from Senator Shelley Moore Capito's staff is and I'll quote, based on today's meeting, the groups seem further apart after two meetings with White House staff than they were after one meeting with President Biden. Uh, and this noted vast differences between the two. Now, let's let's hear from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who talked about this earlier today before the negative feedback. Uh, but as the White House was sending this $1.7 trillion counterproposal to Senate Republicans, we have the sound on that. Let's play that. In our view, this is the act, uh, the art, I should say, of seeking common ground. This proposal exhibits a willingness to come down in size, giving on some areas uh, that are important to the president, otherwise they wouldn't have been in the proposal, while also staying firm in areas that are most vital to rebuilding our infrastructure and industries of the future, making our workforce and our country more competitive with China. 
Okay, so there's still more than a trillion dollars between them, or somewhere around there. We had gotten uh, word, or, or at least a vague mention from Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, that maybe Republicans go up, uh, could go up to about $800 billion. Jeannie, I, I really want to know what you think about this, because previously when I've asked you, you've been a little more pessimistic about these two sides coming together, <laughs> at least than, than I have. I thought there was uh, a lot of bipartisan uh, sort of handshaking, or maybe not handshaking, elbow bumping. But what do you what do you make about the of this 1.7 trillion dollar proposal from the White House, and then some very quick negative feedback from Senator Capito? I hate to be so negative on a beautiful Friday afternoon, but I remain as pessimistic as always. I was going to say, Jack and Rick, can you spell reconciliation? Even before this news came out, we were hearing that the White House was somewhat dismayed that. Capito in her meetings and Republicans, not just Shelley Moore Capito, but in their meetings, in their counter proposal, really didn't change substantially from the original counter proposal. And then we're hearing, of course, that, you know, they come back and and we're at one point seven trillion from the White House. I am not optimistic about this, Jack. I think reconciliation is in order. Plus, the president is getting push from progressives to abandon his bipartisan attempts and stick with what he has committed to initially. So I don't think we're going to get a deal here. That's been my view all along, and I stand by that. Even as a budget reporter, I will cut through the, the Washington talk. Reconciliation means a partisan bill, and it does sound like maybe we're looking. F- Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein. AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. For that, after today's news, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Some of the big news today was on the White House's new counterproposal on infrastructure coming down from their original $2.25 trillion plan to a $1.7 trillion plan. As we just mentioned a couple minutes ago, there was immediate backlash with the staff of Senator Shelley Moore Capito uh, calling out the vast differences between the two sides. Now, I want to spell this out. According to the White House, they would reduce funding in some key areas to try to meet in the middle, reducing funding for roads and bridges and broadband. But there is still money for some things that Republicans never really liked. The clean energy money is there, railways, workforce training. So, Rick, I'm curious what you make of this, and really specifically, is Biden really negotiating in a bipartisan way, or is he putting on a show and ultimately is going to do what he wants to do with Democrats at his side? You know, I I would have said that he was trying to find common ground, uh, as Jen Jen Psaki uh, mentioned in the the, uh, quote that you gave, uh, uh, because it did seem like the administration was moving toward trying to find a deal. Uh, But the method with which they're doing this, you know, sort of this public negotiation, um, really undermines that. Uh, I've never seen a deal in Congress where the two sides basically use press conferences to open and close various negotiating moments. Um, You know, in the old days, we would have gangs of members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, they'd go to the White House, they'd sit down, 
and they'd start hammering this stuff out. They wouldn't use press conferences to to solidify their position. So I, I think there's a, still a deal to get done. I mean, one of the things they've left in uh, in this latest round uh, that went back at $1.7 trillion is all the elder care, home health care stuff that that the Republicans have been opposed to. Uh, if you lifted that out, you're almost at the, you know, eight, nine hundred million billion dollar number. So I, I, I really don't see that math should be the problem. I think it's just the method that what they're doing this seems to be way too public and uh, counterproductive. Well, is it too public or does that just raise the question of who's he really doing this for? I mean, is, is President Biden negotiating very, very publicly uh, with Rep- Republicans for Republicans and to get a bill done? Or is he doing this for Joe Manchin? Because Joe Manchin, it, more than anybody else, seems to be the one who's demanding bipartisan talks. I mean, Rick, it, it, is that what you're getting at, that this isn't a legitimate uh, way to get bipartisan deals done in Washington? And really, this is a nod to Manchin to say, hey, at least we tried? Yeah, Jack, I think it's exactly what you reported a minute ago. Shelley Moore Capito is already upset that, that you know, now she looks like she's being forced into a, a proposal that uh, that she never said she was willing to accept and, and, and as if, like, the counter proposal was somehow in the range. And if I'm Joe Manchin, I don't want to be squeezed. I mean, you know, I, I think that he would much rather be sitting across from the president in the Roosevelt room of the White House, uh, you know, making sure that whatever comes out of there has his blessing, but like if he's not going to do it, the last thing he wants is to create all kinds of noise publicly that he opposes Joe Biden, who's still you know the head of his party. So I right. mean, I, I think that this public uh, uh, pressure campaign that's on right now uh, is just going to uh, really uh, draw the sides further apart rather than try to get them closer together. Jeannie, what do you think about the tax issues, especially because Jen Psaki also mentioned today uh, they're not really budging on taxes. The The president does not want to increase taxes on anybody paying less than $400,000 a year. There hasn't been much movement there. Uh, and lately we've heard a bit about, well, maybe you can make up for this with IRS enforcement, which would raise more money. But there is a quote today, uh, actually this was on Twitter from uh, Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, speaking of newsmaking tweets. Uh, Biden supports, quote, giving the IRS power to spy on your bank account to track every dime you make and every dollar you spend, according to Kevin McCarthy. So clearly it doesn't even sound like Republicans can rally around some something that's not a tax increase but tax enforcement. Jeannie, is there any reason for hope on the tax front that's tied to this? I don't see Joe Biden or the Biden administration moving on his tax promise not to raise taxes for people under 400000 but to raise them for corporations and people who they define as wealthy. And I don't see Republicans moving the other way. You know, there's been fascinating conversations about ways to pay for this, ways to take money already appropriated and to move that into infrastructure, ways to sort of use a a gas tax, maybe on people who are using electric vehicles who aren't paying for it, you know, other sort of ways to pay for this thing. But it doesn't seem like they're moving forward on those conversations. And And just to go back to what you and Rick were talking about, I think it's such a good point, because if you look at the juxtaposition, 
Joe Biden's quiet diplomacy to get to a sort of resolution or at least a ceasefire with Israel and Palestine, which was very behind the scenes and quiet, versus this, which has been very, very public. And I think it looks very clear to me that this is not really about striking a deal because deals don't happen this way. This is about, to your point, showing that they are reaching across the aisle. They are making a good faith effort to the public and others and not really negotiating because he knows how to negotiate it and he does it very well when he wants to. So, Jeannie, real quick, when you say they, that you think they're going to do the reconciliation route, do you think they're just going to scrap all of this and do a partisan infrastructure bill, or do they manage something bipartisan and then do a partisan one after? I, I think it's going to be the, the I think they're going to push through a big bill. I don't think they're going to be able to get two huge bills one through. One big one. Yeah, one big one. Okay. I am Jack Fitzpatrick, joined today by Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. A U.S. proposal for a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15 percent at least got an, an enthusiastic reception in Europe. Uh, we heard from German finance minister Olaf Scholz calling it big progress. This is a pitch that is supposed to be uh, adopted by well over 100 countries. But a little dose of reality, if we're going to be pessimistic today, as Jeannie was on an infrastructure deal, we've got sound from Carly Fiorina, who spoke today uh, to our colleague David Weston at Bloomberg TV, who really brought us down to reality. Let's hear from Carly Fiorina. I think it's a lousy idea. It will never become reality. Uh, countries around the world are not going to agree to give up an important tool for economic development. And that's what tax policy is. It is a right of a sovereign nation to decide on its own tax policy. And countries as diverse as Ireland, India, Singapore, China, Brazil, all have used tax policy to accelerate economic development and create jobs. And indeed, the U.S. does it as well. So I'm not quite sure why this idea keeps coming up, first from Janet Yellen, now from the Biden administration. I'm not quite sure what problem they're trying to solve, but I think it has zero chance of becoming reality. Rick, what do you think? Is this as ridiculous as Carly Fiorina seems to think it is? Well, I, I, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, there already is a tax to capture revenue that, 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 that companies shift to tax haven countries. And it's got the greatest name for any tax I've ever heard. It's called guilty. <laughs> and it's guilty because it's the global intangible low tax income tax. And, and that, that was set at 10.5% when uh, the Republicans did the tax cut of 2017. So we took the corporate rate from 35 to 21, and we created the 10.5 uh, guilty level. So, so really, it's sort of a modification of guilty, where you know the, 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 the Biden administration has basically taken a look at this and said, hey, we think we can boost that up to 15% and get buy-in from like OECD countries. Now, if you can get a lot of these big countries to do that, uh, you're taking some of the chess pieces off the board. And as Carly said, that leaves countries who aren't a part of the OECD or un not under the influence of U.S. economic regimes. Uh, and, you know, it, it certainly gives them an advantage if that's the way they want to generate uh, employment and investment. Uh, but it certainly does, you know, take a lot of the world off the, uh, off the game. And, and, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if they can actually pull it off. 
Right. Well, Rick, I, you know, so this gets an enthusiastic reception from some Europeans where taxes often are higher than what you'd see in, in some developing countries on corporations. Uh, why do you think it, it's getting some praise then from Europeans if they're going to potentially agree to a higher corporate tax rate that uh, India or, or other uh, growing developing nations probably wouldn't adopt? Why, 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 the, uh, why the hand clapping for this by the countries that might kind of get burned by it? Well, I, I think, first of all, it starts with, like, sort of just cleaning up your own backyard, right? And so the OECD countries are competitive against one another now. And the idea around uh, adopting this would be that at least they wouldn't have to look at those other countries that are sort of advanced economies in Europe, uh, you know, as competitors. If, 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 if Germany has to compete against India, I think they'd see that as a fair competition. If Germany has to compete against Great Britain and, and France and some of the other OECD countries, you know, that, that's a little different kind of uh, competition for them and one that I think they would rather uh, remove. And, and so this would give them a chance to at least begin a process around the country and believe me, around the world to create this minimum tax. And it, it will not be a nanosecond that the OECD is, doesn't then start using some of its financial power to force these other countries to adopt the same thing. But if they can do it for themselves, uh, then they have some standing around the world to try and get other people on the regime. Jeannie, I'm, I'm curious, what's your take on how does this interact with the U.S. rate? I mean, we have the Biden administration uh, calling for a U.S. corporate tax rate of 28% up from the current 21%. We've heard 25% thrown out there by the likes of Joe Manchin. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of how realistic the Biden administration is, even is being on the topic of the corporate tax rate paid in the U.S. and around the world. How, do you, do you, can, can you sum this up for me? How do, what's the uh, sort of intersection between this proposal and what the, the Biden administration wants to do in the U.S.? Well, I'm so glad you used that word realistic because that's what came to my mind. Um, I'm trying to move away a little bit from my reputation as pessimistic to realistic. <laughs> and, you know, listening it's the to... Same. <laughs> it's the same. Listening to Carly Fiorina, you know, I think what I hear her saying and what I've heard other people saying is that the realistic uh, view of this is what is the incentive for a country like Ireland or Switzerland who have been enacting tax policies aimed at attracting multinational business investment by lowering their corporate tax rates to now adopt this? So until I hear, you know, a, a sort of way in which this would benefit them, humans and countries and corporations being what they are, I'm not sure I can see how this would be enacted. And I appreciate the optimism of Europe's, you know, sort of, you know, embracing this idea as a concept. But I think, you know, the, the facts on the ground are that there's still not a way in which this benefits those countries who have been doing this. So that's, I think, not to say that the, the Biden administration shouldn't be pushing for this, but that that is something that they have to surmount. And as you look at the corporate tax in the United States, to your point, um, I do think that we may see the corporate tax rate raised to 25%. But again, realistically, it's going to be in a 50-50 Senate where Joe Manchin or anybody else who wants to stand up and say no says it's going to be. And at this point, he's at about 25%. Right. So it probably doesn't get much higher than that. 
I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, both Bloomberg Politics contributors. We are still waiting on that joint press conference that's supposed to happen this afternoon or evening uh, it, with President Biden and South Korean President Moon Jae-in. And you know what, guys? Let's just get this out of the way on a, a Friday afternoon. Uh, the White House is enlisting dating apps to encourage Americans, presumably mostly younger Americans, to show that they are vaccinated. You can get a, a badge on your Bumble account or your Tinder account or your Hinge account saying, I'm vaccinated. And I, I saw this and it raised a couple questions like, how, how does anybody know? Uh, if it's based just on a CDC card. Uh, but also, what does this say about where we are in the vaccination process? Because it seems like uh, getting to people who, who weren't rushing to get a vaccine initially, that's, that's the next big step. And it's probably young people especially. A much lower percentage of young people have been vaccinated than older people. Uh, Rick, what's your experience with the dating apps here? And, and really, what's your takeaway from this? Well, the last time I asked a girl out, they had not invented the Internet yet. So I am probably unqualified for this conversation with dating apps. But I, I would say I, I was curious myself when I got this, you know, white piece of paper that looked pretty cheap. And, you know, even though I got my little stamp and signature of the you know, practitioner gave me the shot on it, I, I, and I felt great about that, I wondered, you know, is this a part of a database that the, the entire country is getting and found out later, no, it's not. Um, you know, is this something that differentiates me from anybody else? And a, a cursory look on the web is you can buy one of these without ever getting a shot. So I, I, I feel a lot less special today than I did at the time I got my shot and got my card. But uh, it makes sense that this would become a commodity. I'm just not sure you know, if it's going to be worth much in the future. Right. Well, I mean, you know, if I pull out my driver's license, it's got a little hologram on it. Uh, and if I take out a dollar bill and I hold it up to a light, I honestly, I don't really carry cash enough to know if they still do this, but I think it's got the face of another president embedded within it. And then I have this very, very valuable thing to me, I think, this CDC card saying I'm double vaccinated, I'm, I'm good to go. And I feel like I could have printed this out at home. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is a sign of the government saying, well, we're not going to do a government vaccine passport, but it's still important to many businesses and people who are swiping on Tinder uh, and cruise lines, probably airlines, uh, as Anthony Fauci has mentioned, they may uh, rely on this kind of thing. So, I, I'm, Jeannie, what's, what, what am I supposed to make of this very important card, at least to many businesses and in daily life as an American, that is really just a piece of paper? Was this an oversight by the federal government? Shouldn't they, should they have done something where, uh, again, I, I pull out my D.C. driver's license, got a hologram on it. The CDC thing is just a, a white piece of paper with black text on it. Yeah, and, and as I've been saying, that my uh, five-year-old could have reproduced with, uh, you know, some cardboard scissors and, you know, a little bit of black ink. But I have to say, my favorite quote of the day is Andy Slavitt, the White House COVID-19 advisor, saying, people who display their vaccination status are 14% more likely to get a match. We've all finally found one thing that makes us all more attractive. So 
<laughs> I give it to Andy Slavitt. And I do applaud the White House uh, for trying to get young people. I work with them all the time vaccinated. It's always an uphill battle. They are a transient population. As we know, with COVID, they have been less likely to get as ill as older people. So it, it's made it harder to reach this population. And if this is one way to do it, God bless them. But I do think the government has it to answer this question. How can you expect businesses, for example, to make decisions on removing masks, retaining masks, deciding who's vaccinated and who's not, if there is no sort of global or national database? And as you mentioned, we are all carrying, I have mine in my wallet. They told me to take a picture of it. I did. It's a white piece of paper, a card that, again, is just handwritten on it with some kind of stamp on it saying I was vaccinated twice, which I was. But again, there apparently goes to no sort of national database. I think that is something we have to contend with. And in a government like ours, which values liberties as we should, issues of privacy are real. And so it's not an easy, and I'm not being facetious, it's not an easy thing for the government to decide to do because our civil liberties are critical and our health privacy is important. So they're trying to balance those, and I think it raises more questions than it answers. Right. Well, you know, the the database issue is something that seems so politically touchy, but it does seem like it, it was possible to do something a little tougher to reproduce uh, than a, a white piece of paper. I, I'm not going to say where you can do this, but I, I checked it out online today. You can go online and buy 50 blank CDC cards for $35.99. It's not difficult to find this at all. They're very easy to produce. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a white piece of paper, and you know there's not a, a database tracking the whereabouts of every dollar, but it's a, a lot harder to uh, counterfeit a dollar. Uh, you know, one other thing I, I wanted to bring up with you guys, as we look ahead on this Friday afternoon, uh, wondering what's going to come up next week, here's something that's not going to come up next week that, it, that must be a real disappointment to President Biden. Remember when he gave the joint address to Congress recently saying, get me this police overhaul bill, uh, especially in memory of George Floyd's uh, death by May 25th, the anniversary of George Floyd's death. May 25th is Tuesday. And watching Congress, there really hasn't been that much movement on this issue. Obviously, they are going to miss that deadline. Uh, I'm curious where this is going to go, especially, you know, does a president lose clout in any way when he says, get this to my desk by May 25th, and very, very little happens? Jeannie, what do you, what do you make of this missed deadline and sort of uh, uh, a real uh, disappointment and a bit of a, a lame moment for, uh, in response to Biden's uh, speech to the joint session of Congress? You know, uh, uh, you know, Congress missing a deadline is not a shock to me. Um, and so, you know, God bless Joe Biden, who was in Congress longer than almost anybody. Well, he should think know of. maybe not to give them the deadline if they're immediately going to miss it, right? Maybe not. And, you know, it may have been a misstep on his part. I don't think the American public will hold that against him. I, I think they will think of it as wishful thinking. And I do. And I'm trying to be optimistic here, Jack and, and Rick, at the end of a Friday long week that I Genie do think. 
optimist. <laughs> Thank you. I do think this is an area where that we may see a, a, a move forward. We've seen some signs of that. But again, this takes time. And to Rick's earlier point, it takes negotiations in committees and behind the scenes for Republicans and Democrats in Congress to come together. So I do think we can see a bill here. But I don't think, obviously, we know now it's not going to be made on that timeline because that's simply not the way our system is structured. Right. Uh, speaking of things coming up next week, the budget proposal, or at least the full budget proposal, uh, is supposed to be coming from the White House uh, next Friday. They were aiming for Thursday and then uh, bumped it to Friday. Real, cr- real quick, uh, Rick, I saw the Washington Post reported this is not going to include a public option. Is there anything significant to that in terms of Biden backing off his, his ambitious early agenda? Yeah, I think that this falls into the category of, you know, biting off more than you can chew. I mean, he's obviously got, you know, trillions of dollars of policy wrapped up in the negotiations we've talked about earlier on the show. And, you know, this is one where he knows not only does he have a battle in his own caucus because the progressive left want much more than just a public option, you know, and and, and even Republicans not really wanting to add to Obamacare. So, I think this is one that you know they're they're gonna they're gonna let pass, let the storm go, and uh, and and keep focused on the agenda that they have. If they can get, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of what's already on the table in Congress, uh, they're not going to look back at this and say, "Wow, we missed this opportunity." Yeah, well, that's one thing to to look forward to next week. Uh, notable that it won't include a, a call for a public option, but we'll be we'll be looking for this. This budget from the president follows what they called a skinny budget. They told Congress basically how much money they need to spend in the next fiscal year, but it didn't include originally uh, in this March proposal all of the tax measures and economic uh, projections and that kind of thing. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.